This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program. If there's no pressure coming from the international community, if there's no scrutiny over China, if there's nothing happening, China is basically going to take it as a sign that they've got the green light to continue their abuses. These are the camps China doesn't want you to see. As yet more evidence emerges that what's happened behind these barbed wire fences to Uyghurs and mostly Muslim minorities may constitute crimes against humanity. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights which should be our common blueprint, is too often misused and abused. Of course, there's a geopolitical understanding of what's happening, but we have to get back to the essence of human rights, and we have back to the essence also of the treaties that this system was created to uphold. If there was ever a moment to revitalize the hope of human rights for every person, it is now. Yet, much of the progress made over decades is being reined back and even reversed in some parts. The fact that we came so tantalizingly close to having a resolution on China adopted at the Council has actually shattered a really important taboo about the ability to take on China on any state, no matter how powerful. Well, hello and welcome to the radio studio at the United Nations in Geneva to this special episode of Inside Geneva. Now, some of our listeners will know because we have covered it a few times and you heard about it there in our introduction. There is this very significant report into China's activities in Xinjiang province It alleges, among other things, possible crimes against humanity. Now, here we are. The UN Human Rights Council is in full swing. You would expect, I'm sure lots of listeners would expect, that the council will be looking very intently at that report. Well, the answer to that is no, maybe yes. To discuss that, I've got a great panel of guests. We have Hilary Power of Human Rights Watch here in Geneva, Zumretai Arkin of the World Uyghur Congress, and Raphael David of the International Service for Human Rights. Hilary, I am going to come to you first because Human Rights Watch has been tireless in asking the UN Human Rights Office to address this issue. You got, we got, I should say, a very in-depth report We also have a new human rights commissioner, Volker Turk. What do you think he could or maybe should do about this report? Thank you, Imogen. I mean, as you say, the the report that was released by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights last year um, was a landmark moment um, here at the UN. Um, in in many senses, uh, not much in there should surprise anybody. The conclusions they came to uh, mirrored um, those of human rights organizations that have been investigating for years that crimes against humanity appear to have been committed in Xinjiang. Um, what's really important about that report in terms of how it's being digested by diplomats here in Geneva is not only the meticulous and painstaking detail that it goes to in detailing the violations, but also the fact that it relies so solidly actually on analysis of government policies, government statements um, to come to its conclusions, which makes um, the, the repeated denials that we've heard all that harder to make. 
Um, states here can no longer say they don't know what's happening. They can no longer say they don't have enough information to take action. So now what we want to see from the United Nations Human Rights Council, which obviously is composed of, of states, is follow-up action. Let me just jump in there at follow-up action because there was a proposal in autumn of 2022, a few months ago, that the next session of the Human Rights Council, this one, should debate this report. It was defeated. So, Moretti, let me ask you, that must have been a huge disappointment. I mean, you have the report, credible evidence, detailed evidence, and the member states who are elected to uphold human rights said, nah, we're not going to, we're not going to debate that. Yeah, I think for us, it, it was a very disappointing and frustrating moment just because as a member of the Uyghur community myself, um, we have been trying to build pressure, galvanize, you know, support all these years and efforts. And we had this moment and we almost believed it. Uh, but obviously, we, we knew that it would be difficult. So for us, it was very frustrating because there was this opportunity to hold China accountable. But then we we just saw it with our own eyes how fast it just went away. When this happened, I was in the room, I remember, and I was just thinking about how political the discussion is becoming and what we are doing as advocates, but also as the Uyghur community, Uyghur groups, is really fight for the people that we've lost contact with, our family members, our relatives, and just thinking about how they would react to this, you know. Um, so I think it was really disappointing. But at the same time, I, I think it was also encouraging because it took us all the, these years. But we saw that you could actually, you know, move things with, within the system. Um, you got and the report, at least. Exactly. It took a lot of efforts and it reports from special rapporteurs, and I think they've done incredible work in the past few years. And I think we got the report, we got the resolutions because of that as well. So I think knowing all of that and how far we've come, it was kind of reassuring just to know that the system is still somehow working. Raphael, let me bring you in there from the International Service for Human Rights. You too, like Hillary at Human Rights Watch, you've been working for years to get more research, more reports, more accountability. When I hear Zemretai and Hillary, they, they're not as downhearted as I might have expected that the Human Rights Council voted not to debate this report. But I'm still asking myself where it goes from here. The UN Human Rights Commissioner, new in the job, Volker Turk, has said it's a serious report, it needs to be addressed. But to me, as a journalist, it feels like the, the member states have kind of thrown him under the bus. So, unfortunately, I'm also not very downhearted on this. I'm extremely optimistic. Um, just to complement what my colleague Sumratai said, it's also been critical for us because it's been the first time that we've, that we've had a discussion at the Human Rights Council, even if during the negotiations. It's the first time that we've forced member states to sit down in a chair and flesh out their positions on the issue. Or if I might say not even on the issue, but on the ability of, of, of member states to discuss this issue. Um, so I would say that that's a very strong starting point. We know where everyone stands, and so we know where we have to work more on. 
Um, we also had the advantage of time. We uh, should remember that uh, High Commissioner, well, former High Commissioner Bachelet released a report a few minutes before leaving office, which was... I um, do remember. I was weeks. very late that night. <laughs> um, I think we all were um, two weeks before the beginning of the September session of the Human Rights Council, which left us with minimal time to, you know, garden the sufficient global attention that, that you know, a resolution required. And still then, we still, still had a very narrow defeat. And that's what we want to leverage for the future, keeping in mind that what needs to happen at some point is that the Human Rights Council adopts a resolution that is commensurate with the gravity of the situation and which therefore establishes an investigation into grave violations in the Uyghur region and across China overall. So I'm wondering, a narrow defeat means no debate. Nevertheless, Hillary and, and then Zumretai, has it caused a change of course? from China, just the fact that the report is out there. I mean, first of all, just to agree completely with what what my colleagues just said, I mean, I think despite the huge disappointment in the vote last September, um, the shameful no votes from countries like Pakistan and Indonesia, even simply just to discuss this report, um, the, the weak abstentions from countries like Mexico, Argentina and Brazil, of course, we were bitterly disappointed by that. Um, however, I, I, I do want to reinforce this sense that this sadly represents a huge step forward in terms of how far the conversation has come here in Geneva over the past few years. I mean, back in 2019, we couldn't find one state that was willing to even read out a statement expressing concern or asking questions about these human rights violations. So the fact that you call it a near defeat, but the fact that we came so tantalizingly close to having a resolution on China adopted at the council has actually shattered a really important taboo about the ability to take on China on any state, no matter how powerful. And I really hope that is a message that's being heard in Beijing. I think we're seeing the trajectory. It just takes a couple of states to take a principal position, whether that's, you know, Mexico, whether that's new members like Chile coming onto the council. It just takes one or or two states and we could see this meaningful initiative adopted by the council. All this to say, the conversation is very much alive here in Geneva. During this session and going forward, I think we can expect those discussions to continue. Sounds like uh, human rights groups are doing a good deal of lobbying behind the scenes during this council session. But for listeners, the question they'll be asking, and I have it too, Zumretai, is do any of these reports cause a change of course by China? I mean, it's an interesting and also difficult question to answer to because obviously the lack of access makes it difficult for us to evaluate that. But at the same time, if you really study the official response or narrative from coming from the Chinese government, you can see that, you know, in 2019, before the, the review by the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, they didn't even like acknowledge the existence of the camps. And then after that review took place, where the chair of the committee basically said, well, we have received credible reports that over a million of Uyghur and other Turkic people have been arbitrarily detained. They then they changed the the narrative and they said, well, we do acknowledge the existence of these vocational training centers, but they're just vocational training centers where people are receiving free education, for example. So that went from that to then 
actually acknowledging that they're combating terrorism. So from complete denial to, to a semi-admission, exactly. which is already interesting. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So over the past few years, we've seen a shift. And if you look at it today, they do acknowledge that. So I think they're adapting their response uh, based on the pressure that they're receiving from the international community. And I think that has a lot of value. Because if there's no pressure coming from the international community, if there's no scrutiny over China, if there's nothing happening, China is basically going to take it as a sign that they've got the green light to continue their abuses. So I think this is important for us to keep that going and to keep that pressure. This is fascinating for me to hear how kind of optimistic you all seem to be. I mean, Raphael, let me let me put this to you. To the outsider looking in, we have two permanent members, veto-wielding members of the UN Security Council, that's China, that is Russia, where credible evidence points to major human rights violations. And for the average person in the street, if you ask them, they would say they're getting away with it. And yet you seem to think that this drip, 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 water on a stone almost activity here in Geneva at UN Human Rights is actually working. It is our job to be optimistic as advocates, I will start by saying. But uh, I, I would do say that September was a key moment for the Human Rights Council. And uh, do remind that we did have a resolution creating a UN expert on Russia, which was the first time that that ever existed for a, a P5 member. Russia was also kicked out of the Human Rights Council last year, which is also significant and contributed to more positive votes at the Human Rights Council. I will also say that we've had in the past other P5 countries called out by the Council, including the United States. So we can see how the Council has actually gradually, even with difficulty, but gradually fulfilling its mandate of holding states accountable, even the most powerful Grown a bit of courage. Exactly. And so that's what we're looking to reinforce when it comes to China, something that China leverages a lot, which is this difference between the West and and, and the other countries. Um, And I think it's a pity that a lot of countries from the global South, and myself Brazilian, are perceived as having to pick sides. And instead, they cannot come up with an autonomous principle position on this. And I think that's how China is a significant challenge to the Human Rights Council and to the ability of those countries to actually demonstrate, yes, we can support efforts for justice for Uyghurs, efforts to hold China accountable for violations of Uyghurs, the same way that we can support efforts to hold the United States accountable for systemic racism and other violations. And I think that's the question of principle that we're talking about here at the Human Rights Council, and that's uh, that's at stake with those discussions for all states, West and, and others. So, Hillary, we do get to the point we're seeing the big fish. They get criticized, China, Russia, the US. But if they don't react, then... What is actually the power of the UN Human Rights Council? I mean, just to be clear as well, I mean, what what we're talking about here is the value of the UN Human Rights Officers Report, the value of member states coming together at the Human Rights Council to try and pass a resolution, to try and put in place reporting, scrutiny, hopefully contribute to accountability. Is all of this enough? And does it immediately halt the violations? No. Is it really important nonetheless? Yes. 
what we're talking about here is building the pressure and the Human Rights Council is just one place we, we can use to do this. This is very much in the context of, of broader efforts. The council may not have adopted this decision in September, but that doesn't have any impact on the High Commissioner for Human Rights' ability to continue to follow up on this report. He's acknowledged his responsibility to do so. We would like to see him hold a dedicated briefing for states on the report to continue the discussion, to support people, and, and this is what we're talking about here, support people who are looking for disappeared loved ones, family members, and to work towards individual releases. And across all of this, that the High Commissioner for Human Rights and ideally member states are meaningfully consulting with Uyghur groups, other groups, civil society, to see what more both practical and political support they require. So the consensus from all three of you is very important report. It's not going away. The vote in September, not to debate it, was unfortunate. But actually, it's still being debated all over the place. And it's going to be brought up over and over again in different groups, subcommittees, etc. Let me widen this debate out because there's another thing I wanted to address in this podcast before we finish is what a lot of my colleagues have noticed over the years is a kind of ideological split about what human rights actually are. We are in the 75th year of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, but we do get this division between what some people term collective rights, these might be the more social and economic ones, versus the individual right-to-be-me kind of rights. So Maritai, China has been one to try and exploit this division. Does that concern you? I mean, I think so. And I think whenever, I, I think we've mentioned it before as well, whenever there are, um, you know, issues related to discrimination or other issues, they, they are quick to point fingers to other states like the U.S. or others. I think for, for us, it's really helpful when states are courageous enough to be able to take the hit, but also to point out the double standard and say, well, Yes, we may have committed these things, but we are open and transparent about it. And we're able to have a, a proper and meaningful constructive dialogue to try to seek ways to uh, repair. And I think this is something that's missing with authoritarian governments because you just don't have access to that. Rafael, does this debate worry you, this ideological split? Because I sense it even in my own home country. Sometimes you hear this debate of why are we worrying about that one particular issue of human rights, when there are so much bigger things, there's a cost of living crisis. Talking to Volker Turk uh, a few weeks ago, he insisted that all of these things are indivisible. And yet some countries don't think that. And he's right, they are indivisible. We do see in increasing tensions at the Human Rights Council. There's a, a, several ideological divisions that we see widening, but there's also nuance to this. And we see them along the lines of, you know, universality versus cultural particularism, etc. There are non-new debates. That's also something true to highlight. They've, uh, we've inherited them and they've, they've had their ups and downs. There is also divisions when it comes to countries that, you know, want state sovereignty to trump any state's legal obligation on international human rights law. So a very selective interpretation of the UN Charter. These are definitely not uh, not new things. But I think that getting back to this this question of, of, of uh, responding to the situation in China is a way to demonstrate that 
we should break a little bit from that very polarizing and very political vision of things and really consider situations really based on their merits. Um, there is plenty of UN documentation that demonstrates um, this idea that, you know, human rights are indivisible, that we're actually not only talking about, you know, civil and political rights, we're talking about economic, social and cultural rights, as Sumritai said just today. Uh, and we're talking about collective rights too. Um, and I'll just want to finish by highlighting one thing that, that I did want to bring up today, which is a very important decision by a, a committee on, on racial discrimination, that the oldest treaty committee in the UN system, who issued a very, very rare condemnation of the situation in the Uyghur region, highlighting a series of concerns, um, including leaked documents such as the Xinjiang police files, etc. And that committee that is seen as very legitimate and that has also tackled, uh, you know, again, systemic racism in the United States, in other countries, He's reminded all governments that they have a legal obligation to cooperate to put an end to the worst violations of human rights. And they reminded not only of the, the government's moral duty to do so, but of their legal obligation. And I think that's really what it's at the heart of the system is, of course, there's a geopolitical understanding of what's happening, but we have to get back to the essence of human rights. And we have back to the essence also of the treaties that we that this system was created to uphold. On that note, I'm going to ask each of you, just a kind of quick fire to finish the programme, the top of your wish list for this anniversary year. We know that Volker Turk, the new uh, UN Human Rights Commissioner, wants to be marking this anniversary and reminding people what the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was all about. He wants to do it all year long, not just in December, which is the specific anniversary so, Mretta, let's start with you. What's the top of your wish list for this anniversary year? That's actually a really good question. Um, I think meaningful engagement um, with civil society groups, especially the affected community. When we're talking about the Uyghur issue, it's it's a broad range of issues. It's not just concerning minority rights. It's about it's about women's issues. So, I think being able to have a consistent strategy and being able to work also with other agencies. So I guess, yeah, those would be my my two top. Hillary? Those are great ones. Um, I mean, I, I, I think from, from maybe a broader perspective, I really want to see states from all regional and political groups um, that are committed to, to human rights and the, the principles of not only human rights, but multilateralism, stand together, work together, um, and commit to holding states responsible for human rights violations, particularly crimes against humanity, no matter who it is that's committing them. Of course, uh, addressing the, the OHCHR report in Xinjiang will, will be a litmus test of that. Raphael. I will narrow it down a little bit, but I would say that, you know, um, to build upon the, the incredible work that our Uyghur colleagues and activists have done, also ensuring that all the incredible documentation that we've had from the UN, including the OACHR report, allows us to also have a broader look at the situation in China. And the UN has done a great job at highlighting the key roots of uh, that have, have allowed massive, violation, massive violations to happen in across China that have affected equally Tibetans, Hong Kongers, um, Chinese human rights defenders. So we hope that, you know, the international community will pay attention to this, to um, using this opportunity. And, and, and I'll finish by saying that a community that is often forgotten in China is that of, of Chinese human rights defenders. We're also in the 25th anniversary of the UN Declaration of Human Rights Defenders. 
Um, and it's an important anniversary for us, and it's also an important reminder that you know all the action that states should take uh, on the situation should really be driven by the voices and the needs of victims and human rights defenders. Okay, thank you all very much. I'm just going to add my own two little items on the wish list for this year. Human rights defenders, because I am fortunate enough to have met many of them reporting here from Geneva, and they are some of the bravest people on our planet. And second, we have a lot of war right now. And every single UN Human Rights Commissioner that I've ever interviewed has always pointed out that there is no real peace without respect for human rights. So member states of the Human Rights Council, you might think on that during your deliberations of this session. Hilary Power, Sumrete Arkin and Raphael Viana, thank you all very much. That's it from this edition of Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you all for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our previous episodes, how the International Red Cross unites prisoners of war with their families, or why survivors of human rights violations turn to the UN in Geneva for justice. I'm Imogen Folks. Thanks again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. Listener.